hello out there, all you terrific tigers. Thanks for coming back with us for another week of A Little Greener, a podcast all about nature, conservation, and sustainability. My name is Sarah. I'm one of your hosts, and I am here with the wonderful Casey. Hello, everyone. How are you doing this week, Casey? Oh, I'm doing okay. We've got a, it's kind of allergy central, I feel like right now in in Indiana. So I apologize if my voice is a little funky or if you hear any sort of gross, like sniffing, that's, that's me. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'll edit it out. Don't worry. There we go. Thanks Sarah. (laughs) You're hard work. How are you this weekend? I'm good. Well, I mean, it's sort of my weekend. It is. I'm off tomorrow. Um, I'm pretty good. I'm trying to think if I did anything exciting in the past week we talked last time about my plants my plants I'm still are they alive it's undetermined still (laughs) about the milkweed I can't decide like they definitely kind of look a little brown but I also still feel like there's like maybe a little bit of growth so I don't know but I did I did actually plant the coneflower I think I did that in the last week so they are they're all in the ground now excellent Um, and so the coneflower are are still alive we'll see there's also already so many weeds growing back <laughs> again. so oh oh no I have an exciting nature thing tell me I knew I knew there was something I saw an owl last night I, I did was so yeah excited. I saw that yeah I posted it um I haven't seen them in so long I've seen them in in my backyard a couple of times in the years that I've lived here but I've been hearing them I can hear like sound is really weird in in my house, like where I can hear things. And so in my bedroom, I would hear owls calling every once in a while. And then I would go running out to uh, the backyard and I could never find them. And I heard owls calling earlier yesterday evening. And so I ran out with my camera and I was looking and looking and I couldn't find them. And I was even like playing a barred owl call on my phone and I, I, I got nothing. Um, so I just went back inside and then it was a couple hours later that I heard like a scuffle. It sounded like it was on my roof or like on the side of my house. And I was like, raccoon a possum I don't know but I went outside just with my phone flashlight and I couldn't find anything and then I saw something that I'm pretty sure was an owl like flying out of a like a densely leaved tree on the side of my house and I was like oh dang it I think that was an owl and I missed it and I'm watching for it for a minute and then I turn around to go inside and there's literally an owl sitting like right on an open branch right behind me so of course all I have is my phone and so I got a couple of pictures and then I ran inside and I did I got one picture with my actual camera that of course was not set up to take a picture at night so it looks well, terrible. That's so cool though. But yeah, I was very excited. So there's my there's my fun nature story for the week. Uh we have to do an episode about owls. We yes, put it on the list. We'll do put an episode on about the owls. list. Owls are super, super cool. Now, was this also the time you did your like soundscape listening, or have you accomplished that for the week? So I haven't posted or recorded a soundscape yet because I'm trying to since we're recording. Yeah. A week in advance, I try to wait and do some of them along with our listeners. So I haven't actually recorded or posted, but I have really since talking, we talked, um, for those of you who maybe don't, don't listen in order, we talked last week about noise pollution and I really have found myself being much more conscious of 
the sounds around me. And, you know, when I do go out into my backyard, <laughs> unfortunately, I'm, I'm being much more conscious of the anthropogenic noises. So I'm like, oh, there's my neighbors mowing their lawn or they're, you know, working on their roof or I can hear, you know, the street noise all the way from my backyard. So, but it has been interesting still, even just to notice those sorts of things. So I've been listening, but haven't recorded yet. What about you? I kind of the same. I was like, okay, I didn't make it out to the park this week. So I decided not to do my recording at all. And I try and kind of record and post right away again for our listeners listening along. But I was sitting around my backyard the other day and just like closed my eyes and was listening. And we have a, a rooster and some chickens a couple of houses down. And then we have ducks across the street. What? Yeah. There's a lot of random animals That's in so my neighborhood. I want chickens. Uh, I, I mean, I like chickens. I, well, I, I like the idea of having chickens. <laughs> <Fair>. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks to all our friends who give me eggs from your chickens at home. But, um, it's yes, I think it's great. To, and, it's, but it's especially surprising just because we live in a city. Mm-hmm. So it is, uh, it's right nearby real close. The rooster does call whenever he feels like it. Mm. He is not restricted to the morning hours, which, you know, that's fine. <laughs> um, and then our neighbors have some dogs too. So definitely, I mean, those are not nature sounds per se. They are animal sounds. I also was listening a little bit last night. We had our friend Kristen over and, um, and we heard a cardinal right as the sun was setting with the pew, pew, pew. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and she was like star Wars birds. So, <laughs> <laughs> so there are some birds around too, but that's the plan kind of in this upcoming week listeners. Uh, if you're listening, this is last week. I don't know. The timeline's confusing, <laughs> but, but we'll do our homework. We promise. Well, Sarah, uh, I have a get to know you question for the week. We're going to be talking about beef and, uh, here in America, we each have our own individual relationship with beef, but as a culture, we have one too, but I was just wondering what your personal relationship with beef is. I am not one of those. Well, it's hard to say. I was going to say, I'm not one of those people that's super tied to beef. I do love it. I mean, you know, hamburgers at cookouts in the summer and and that kind of thing. I love a good, you know, steak if I go out to a restaurant. So I do really enjoy beef and certainly grew up having it. What I will say though, is as an adult and living on my own, I hardly ever have it anymore. I mean, those, those situations that I just named are probably typically speaking. The only times that I eat it is if I'm at a cookout I might have a hamburger. If I'm out at a nicer restaurant, I might go for the steak because that's the only time I'm ever going to have it. I, I don't really eat out much. Uh, at the end of a race, this is my relationship with beef now. <laughs> when I finish a race, hamburger, fries, and a milkshake, like that's, <laughs> that's my post-race meal that I crave that I need to have. Um, so that's, that's my relationship now. But otherwise, I almost never eat it. I just don't buy it. I don't know really how to prepare it well. So it's not something that is part of my diet much anymore. Somewhat ironically, I knew what we were going to be talking about today, maybe for the first time, I, since I can't even tell you when I actually had a hamburger for dinner <laughs> last night. And tonight I get a, like, I get a food delivery box and they sent me some hamburger, but that is the last, I mean, I couldn't tell you the last time that I had beef in the house before this time. So what about you? 
I, I think maybe a little bit similar, right? Um, so I grew up with lots of beef. My mom sort of formulated a meal of meat is the central center of the meal. And then you have a starch and a vegetable. And so a lot of the meals growing up, we had shepherd's pie, Salisbury, Salisbury steak, London broil, pot roast. So a lot of those like big comfort foods. And I love it. Like we, we ate a lot of it, but as I, I got older, my mom made me a cookbook with a lot of those recipes in it. And I found that like beef is pretty expensive, especially right. if you're living by yourself to invest in that much beef. That's a lot. And then learning more about the environmental consequences of it, I have really restricted it in my diet. And I was thinking about the other day, and I think I treat beef a little bit like I treat alcohol. Um, mm-hmm. Although I would say I eat beef less than I drink alcohol, <laughs> but um, not that I drink that much. But uh, basically, I reserve it for social settings for the mm-hmm. most part. Like you said, going out to a restaurant where I know it's going to be prepared better than I can. Or if I'm hanging out with friends and we're doing a cookout, we have a Bob's Burgers cookbook. And so I enjoy making hamburgers. Awesome. It's super fun. Um, so I enjoy that a lot. And then if I'm cooking with my mom, um, my sister's a vegetarian. And so if my mom wants to cook a meal that we had growing up, I'm not going to say no to it. Right. <laughs> it's still yeah. delicious. I still love it. Um, but I definitely eat very, very little of it overall. So I wanted to open with this question because beef is a very controversial topic in this country. We have really close cultural ties with beef, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But it has come up a lot because of its impact, specifically on our climate, but also lots of other environmental factors. So today we're going to really explore that a little bit, and we'll talk about caveats after we're done with your review. But I just wanted to introduce it and and let you guys know if you're listening, we're not vegans or vegetarians. We eat beef. And we're going to talk a little bit about it and our relationship with that, along with all of the statistics that I could find. (laughs) (laughs) So thanks for listening. Stay tuned. And we'll be back with a review from Sarah. Welcome back, everyone. I am so excited about the review for this week. Again, if you listened, I already forget because time means nothing anymore. If this was maybe two episodes ago. I think it was the primate episode, yeah. The primate episode, which if you haven't listened to that one and you're listening to this one, please go listen to the primates and social media episode. It is one of my favorites that we've done. It's a long one, but I do love it. And it's a super important topic if you are someone who cares about wildlife. So listen to that one. If you have listened to that one, then you've kind of gotten a sneak peek already because I'm going to talk about wild crats today. And I like, you can't see my face, but I, we are beaming right now. <laughs> I, spoiler, I love wild crats so much. This is, this is going to be a rave review for sure. <laughs> um, but I want, I need everyone listening who might possibly be interested in this to understand just how much I love wild crats. So I'll give you a little overview about uh, what this is. This is a TV show, a, a television show. I mean, it's for kids, but we're all, we're all children at heart. Right. <laughs> um, and I, I think it's fantastic. So wild crats is a show it is it's on PBS kids here I guess in the United States I have no idea if this is a show that can be watched internationally I should look into that but here in the United States on PBS kids probably 
target age range, maybe four to eight year old kids, but it's put on by the Kratt brothers. These are two real life brothers, Chris and Martin Kratt, and they are both like one of them has a degree in biology one of them has a degree in zoology but they also have their own production company and they act as writers of the show they're they direct these shows along with other folks as well but they are were you about to say something Casey? I had no idea yeah. I mean oh, yeah. like I was just like these guys love animals they're kind of like the actor dudes but that's awesome that they're so deeply involved in the production yeah. of their television shows yep it's it, it really is it's fantastic and they've had this is they've had a, a couple other shows prior to this so we mentioned in that private episode Zabumafu uh, which was a show that I I missed out on growing up but Casey's me <laughs> and you and Zabumafu anyway I could sing this whole song but I won't. there you go so there's Zabumafu and then before that they had another show I think was called Be the Creature or something like that but um Wildcats is their currently running show I think it started actually back in early 2011 I want to say um, is when it started and then I believe my understanding is that the seventh season starts uh, airing this summer so they're in their sixth season right now and um, so what this show is the format that this show has taken on is an animated show but it's kind of bookended on either side by some real life clips so you'll see Chris and Martin they'll actually introduce the show and you know give you a little bit uh, of an intro of what kind of animals they're going to be focusing on in that particular episode so they kind of introduce you to an animal talk a little bit about some of its adaptations what makes it cool and then the setup is kind of imagine what if we had these powers or what if we could do these things that these cool creatures do and then they transition to the animated episode where they go uh, on some kind of adventure in a given habitat and encounter these various different animals and it is like a like a superpower type show so um, the animated crap brothers can take on some of the traits of the different species that they're interacting with so they have a little team of people that can create these little suits that give them different powers depending on what animal that they're talking about so it's a really really fun way to explore a lot of different types of animals and a lot of different types of, of habitats. And then at the end of the show as well, they'll come back with another little live action segment to kind of sum up some of the things that they learned. So they're short again, you know, it's a kid's show. So I think they're like between 20 and 25 minutes long altogether. But what I really love about them is, you know, they, they clearly grasp the importance of age appropriate education. So I, I think they do that so well. The show really focuses on this exploration aspect and this uh, building of empathy with wildlife and those if you go back to our second episode where we talked about the importance of getting outside we we talked about that and I think they just they hit the nail on the head with this show it just it does that so well it's so fun and it but it also at the same time it like models good behavior for them without being sort of heavy-handed without getting negative about things I think that it it does start planting some of those seeds of ways that we can be good stewards for the environment 
an example to to sort of illustrate that one of their more recent episodes actually was on primates and in the show they travel to the rainforest and they're looking at different types of tamarins and marmosets and they're exploring you know why why they have look at all of these similar animals that have all of these different hairstyles and patterns and all of that and exploring why that might be and through the plot of the episode there's sort of a a little villain type character where they are they're capturing some of these tamarins to use as models for different human hairstyles so again kids show but basically they've got these little tamarins trapped in little magical balls to use for inspiration and so they're not talking about the pet trade or anything like that but it comes through at the end of the episode where you know the animated crap brothers are like you know well we we care about these animals and we want to protect them in the wild and we want them to be you know safe where they belong basically and that's the message that's coming out of it and i think that's just a, a beautiful way to start illustrating that without having to dive into some of those those heavier issues and you know, I've not watched every episode of this show, but I have watched a lot of them. And <laughs> I feel like they, they just, they do that really well. Um, and, and I, you know, there are probably a number of different examples that, that I could cite there. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's not a critique I've heard of Captain Planet, which a lot of people grew up on. And mm-hmm. I, I, I did. I, you did. Okay. Yeah. So my understanding is the, the villains in Captain Planet were very like, I am a CEO of a fossil fuel company sort of situation, <laughs> um, which is very real life. The Wildcrats, wild crats. that's that's their show <laughs> that I'm talking about right now. Um, the Wildcrats uh, episode I remember watching is about ring-tailed lemurs and they're talking about how they use stink to communicate and mark their territories. And I think the villain in that one wanted to capture them because she wanted to make their stink into perfume. Mm-hmm. So it's like an absurd villain. This is not making a real life analogy to an actual person, which I think, yeah, it helps instead of blaming this real life entity that we're not explaining all the nuances of why they're making decisions. We're not framing Malagasy people taking lemurs out of the wild Mm -hmm. as the villain in this. We're talking about a super villain trying to make perfume out of lemur stink. It's like, it's absurd, but it's still, it has that stewardship element like you're talking about. And I cannot tell you the amount of kids who've come up to me and are like, did you know that I eyes tap the tree six times a second to find bugs? And I'm like, do you watch Wildcats? And they're like, yes. And that like, that's any small child that comes up to me with an absurdly obscure, but like important fact about a random animal. I'm like, you watch Wildcats, don't you? Yeah. I love you. <laughs> yeah. No, this is, that is so true. I thank you for saying that. Cause I wanted to talk about that too. Like, again, if anybody listening out there, like if you, if you are an environmental educator, or if you are around kids, you know, this is a great Casey's exactly right. Anytime that I'm having a conversation with a kid and we'll be talking about animals and they'll start telling me cool things and I'll be like, wow, you know, you know, you know a lot about animals. You could have my job. How'd you learn so much about animals? 99.99% of the time, either the kids like wild cats and I'm like, yes, I love wild cats too. Or they're like, I don't know. I just like animals. And the, the parents will go tell her, tell her what your favorite show is. And they're like, I like wildcats. So they, yeah, they really, they're, they're making a huge impact out there, I feel like. And so if you are somebody who works in that field or works with kids, watch the show, like check it out because it is a really great way that you can then relate to kids. And I think, you know, when I first learned about wildcats, like I would bring it up with kids 
but now that I have actually watched it and experienced it for myself, like I can genuinely have conversations with these kids and we can, we can sort of bond over it a little bit. Um, but I think it helps me to be able to have better, better conversations with them for sure. Um, and, and I could, I could go on all day, but we have other things to talk about. So I will leave it at that. But, but I guess to, to just reiterate that it, it's a kid's show, but I think it really can be beneficial for everyone. I mean, I watched an episode the other day on title pools, like intertidal zones. And I learned, I learned things. Yeah. I learned stuff that I didn't know. And um, I, I just, I think it's a really good thing what they're doing. And I, I would encourage you to check it out. And I know like even too, I've had nights where, you know, I come home and I'm tired and I just want to put something on and, but I can't sort of mentally take, <laughs> take anything too challenging. I've come home and I've just put on Wildcats and it's, it's, it's fun, but it's you'll, wholesome. you'll get something out of it too. It's so wonderful. And also, um, Chris and Martin on the weird off chance that you hear this, cause we're tagging you on social media. Thank you. Thank you Thanks. for all Seriously. you do. Yeah. Um, you're inspiring kids to grow up and be conservationists and care about the environment. I'm one of those kids. Mm -hmm. So thank you for doing that for me. And thank you for doing that for all the kids even younger yeah. than me. And what a, what a tricky way to get up uh, around aging to turn yourself into a cartoon. I'm yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. No, yeah, they're so great. Like I, I'm welling up a little bit, like I'm getting a little bit teary eyed because it's so true. And I hope they know, like, I hope they know the the impacts that they're having on people. Cause that 99.99% is not an exaggeration. <laughs> so, <laughs> so 17 out of 10 stars would recommend wild Kratz. Check it out. If you watch it, let us know what you thought. <laughs> Hopefully I didn't build it up. <laughs> and we'll be right back with the main discussion for today. All right, everyone. And we are back for the main body segment of our episode today. We're talking about beef and originally I was going to stick strictly to beef and climate change. And we're going to talk a lot about that, but also that requires us to talk a lot about a lot of parts of beef production. So this episode might just be called an episode about beef and we might come back to beef again in the future. Beef consumption became a really controversial subject about two years ago uh, with the introduction of the Green New Deal into Congress. We're not going to talk about the Green New Deal today, but it got reintroduced this year and beef became controversial once again. So it is again topical. I don't have to refer that far back, um, but a couple of caveats. What's the motto of our show? Sarah and I are not experts. We did our research. We will post the resources in the show notes. This is especially important for this episode because if you Google beef impact on anything, you will find a million different statistics and they will support whatever worldview you're interested in. So I really tried to find sources that were very unbiased, even mm -hmm. keeled for it. And I also was able to find some resources that talked about what maybe some of the biases might be within the statistics that we're looking at. So we'll talk a little bit about that. I want to say a special thanks to our world in data because they do really awesome visualizations of land use. 
World Resource Institute has an excellent article that uh, has like six pressing questions about beef. Uh, Sarah and I both really love that. Uh, We're going to also cite the UN Food and Agriculture Organization for some of their statistics. Mangabe uh, is an environmental news organization. I'm going to cite a bunch of stuff from them and I'll try and kind of point out what's from where, but those are some of our, our folks that we're drawing some of these resources from. Another caveat, we're not talking about animal welfare today. I feel like when I was growing up, every time I heard about vegetarianism, it had to do with specifically how animals were treated in the food production sector. That's still something that's obviously a concern. It's still something that people base that decision on. A lot more vegetarians today do base that decision on the overall environmental impact that meat has. Um, But we're just not going to touch the subject today because it also varies really wildly across the sector. And it's kind of a personal decision as well. We're just going to talk about the environmental consequences of beef. So Sarah, to start with, why are we talking about beef? Why are we not talking about chicken? Why are we not talking about other types of meat? What factors are we looking at when we're talking about beef? Yeah, so I think largely it has to do with the inputs to the beef, right? The resources that are involved in actually raising the beef. So it's not thinking even so much necessarily about the land that the cattle are on itself, but thinking about the land that is required to grow the food that we feed to the cattle throughout their life to get them to the point where we're we're going to be consuming them basically so thinking about the the land cost of that and so we've talked about water on this podcast before, the water that it takes for the agriculture to grow the food, to feed the cattle that we are then going to eat. So I think a lot of it has to do with that, the, the size of these animals, their, um, how, how long it takes to get them to the, the, the finishing process and the, the amount of energy that is required of them. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're going to touch on all of those things and more today. Um, uh, one of our good friends and listeners, Alex pointed out that when she did her water calculator survey, her biggest impact that she had was the fact that she ate meat. Um, and that's true. Another book that you can always look at as a resource for this is Diet for a Small Planet. It's a very old book, but uh, as far as this goes, it's one of the first to really address this, but they talk about like you eating 10 pounds of steak in a whole year is basically also the equivalent to your water usage in your home for a year. So it's, it's very resource intensive. It also causes nutrient pollution. It takes a lot of land use um, and it impacts climate change a lot. So according to the FAO, globally, livestock emissions account for about 14.5% of global emissions, carbon emissions. It it ranks like uh, at least a little higher, I think, than the country of India's total carbon emissions. 41% of those emissions are related to livestock, specifically from beef production. An additional 20% is milk production. So even though there are billions of chickens and turkeys and other poultry on planet earth, a huge sizable part of our emissions caused by livestock has to do with cows. And that is one of the reasons why you hear them brought up so much when we're talking about policies to reduce our carbon emissions is it's very easy to logically say the agricultural sector has to be included in this. And then to look at one of the biggest impacts to look at cows. And today we're going to talk about ways that on the consumer end, we can cut down on our beef consumption, but also on the producer end, how we can reduce some of those carbon emissions as well. 
Can I just, yeah, go for it. So one thing that I will sometimes get pointed out as well with this is, so we just said livestock emissions account for 14.5% of global carbon emissions. So you will find sometimes people arguing that we're making too big a deal out of this because there are other things that have a higher percentage or contribute a higher percentage yeah. to the emissions. So I just want to acknowledge that, yeah, we, we have that statistic in here. So this is 14.5%. There are other things. And so by, by doing this episode and talking about this, by no means are we saying, and I think we'll probably touch on this later on too, by no means are we saying that this is, this is the only thing contributing to right. climate change and the, the, the problems that we're facing. We're just acknowledging that it's, it is a factor and how can we improve on this particular factor? That's a great point. Like a huge percentage of our carbon emissions are produced by energy and transportation. That's the majority of where that comes from. However, according to the University of Michigan, 10 to 30% of your carbon emissions are related to your diet. So if we're going to talk about how we personally can reduce mm -hmm. our carbon emissions, we absolutely have to address diet. Yes. And this is a greater percentage of your emissions, your carbon footprint, if you don't make as much money. So if you're not constantly taking airplanes out <laughs> and into different areas going on vacation, then more likely than not, diet's actually a really big part of how you impact the planet. No one's saying you shouldn't eat. We're saying that there's <laughs> different choices you can make within your diet that are going to impact what that footprint actually is. And the reason we're addressing beef is because it's, its impact is disproportionate to the amount of calories and protein that we actually get out of it. And that it's a huge thing here in the U.S., which we'll also talk about. I also want to point out, and we'll talk a little bit about this later, but actually four companies control 85% of the U.S. beef supply. So this is actually a very concentrated problem. These include Tyson, Cargill, JBS, and National Beef, and that's according to Politico. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I do feel like I'd be remiss not to talk about what climate change is. And we're going to try and make it a really short segment, I promise. So if you already know what this is, we don't have to go over it. I'm going to try and do it in maybe 45 seconds or less. Sir, do you have a timer on you? Because if not, I well, can. Hold on. I got okay. it. Let me let me get it here. All right. I got my stopwatch pulled up. Do you want me to cut you off at 45 seconds? No, you're just going <laughs> to tell me what I end up at. I think okay. that'll be the most thing. Ready? All right. I'm ready. All right. Go. So on planet Earth, we have an atmosphere. When the sunlight comes down, the energy and heat goes through our atmosphere. Some of it bounces out back into space, but some of it is trapped by naturally occurring gases in the atmosphere. The climate is changing because human activity has caused an increase in those gases, basically making a blanket thicker around the planet, which traps more heat and causes global temperatures to rise and to cause climate to change. How did I do? Dang, that was 26 seconds. Yes. Okay. Uh, another <laughs> note, I probably could have just added this into there. Another note is basically that our climate gets colder and hotter over time naturally. That happens, but it typically happens over thousands of years and millions of years, not over hundreds of years. And since the pre-industrial period, ours has changed about 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit and we're on track for it to go much higher. And that's according to NASA. So when we're talking about emissions, we say carbon emissions, the biggest contributor to climate change are carbon dioxide emissions. And that's typically what we measure. But today we're also going to be talking about a couple other, what we call greenhouse gases, those gases that help trap the heat that end up making the planet warmer because of an increased amount of them. And that's gonna include methane and nitrous oxide. 
Also fluorinated glasses, uh, gases, not glasses, fluorinated gases are also another one, but we're not gonna talk about those today. How long they stay in the atmosphere, how much they actually trap heat, how much are emitted are all part of those calculations. So we'll talk a little bit about how that works out, but it is complicated and people disagree. So meat has a higher carbon footprint than plants almost always. Why is that? It's higher up on the food chain. So as Sarah mentioned, when you are growing a cow, you have to feed it plants. <laughs> so let's start with plants. Sarah, what parts of plant production use energy and emit carbon on an industrial farming scale? So I'm not super knowledgeable on this side of things, but I think, I mean, I guess part of it depends on what you're, you're starting with, but land use conversion can be part of it. Mm -hmm. So if you are having to degrade an existing habitat to clear space for your crop production that's gonna we're gonna set that carbon off to the side okay because yeah, that's gonna be its Ten own more. little thing but Excellent. if you're just planting your crops what do you got to do to make them grow i mean you got to plant them so usually <laughs> there's machinery involved with that on an industrial scale so that's going to have some carbon emissions right there and I mean, we've talked about water use as well to allow them to grow. And we've talked a little bit about the tie-in between water and energy as well. So that's part of it. Yep. You uh, are going to have to, so yeah, we got, we planted the seeds, we've watered them on an industrial farming scale. We also need to use fertilizers and mm -hmm. pesticides. Fertilizers do put out nitrous oxide and also, uh, which is a greenhouse gas and then nitrates, which Sarah talked about a little bit in our, our water use mm -hmm. episode where we talked about how you have to treat a lot of well water in, and city water in the Midwest because there's a lot of nitrates that end up polluting the water. Um, so that's another environmental impact on the down low, but also a carbon emission. We, we've watered them. We've now fertilized them. We've kept the pests away. Now it's time to harvest and process them. Now, Something that's a little bit of a misconception is you will hear a lot of times people tell you when you're trying to eat a planet healthy diet that you need to eat locally mm -hmm. and eating local is great, but it actually only accounts for about 5% of the carbon emissions. Interesting. So it's actually a, a very small portion of the overall carbon emissions. If you cut out, like if you switch one meal a week, I think it's the statistic I found from beef to plants, it basically cancels out all of your transportation costs. So, wow. um, so we want to push on every lever. We want to make sure that we're reducing in every way, but that's actually a pretty minor portion of it. And interestingly, only about 20% of emissions related to livestock are attributed to the burning of fossil fuels, according to the FAO. Now, fossil fuels are required to operate those heavy machinery. They're required to produce the pesticides and fertilizers, to transport the water. All of these things require energy. And so that's how plants get their particular carbon footprint. And then the amount of those things that need to go into it, and then the corresponding production of those plants really correlate to how, how productive they they are and what their carbon footprint is. So uh, one crop might only produce, I don't know, a hundred pounds of crop per land unit where another one does 200. And so <laughs> the other one might have a, a lower carbon footprint. When we're looking at that, that's why plants <laughs> basically then you get, they get shipped to your house and processed and you eat them. When you have animals, you have to feed them those plants. So there's a couple of trade-offs there. You have to feed animals these plants. So you have to put that into their carbon footprint. But also these are plants that, or at least these are areas of land 
that could be used to grow crops meant to feed humans, but instead are crops going to feed livestock. So we'll talk about that in a moment. But one of the reasons beef has such a high carbon footprint is because they require a lot of food per unit of productive meat, basically. Lamb also has a very high carbon footprint this way, then it's kind of pork, and then poultry is much, much lower on there. And it's basically because cows are not efficient digesters and converter of calories from food to weight. So according to all an, a wellfedworld.com and uh, also diet for a smaller planet, it takes at least six pounds of grain fed to an animal to produce one pound of meat or at least one pound of animal out of it. That's one of the reasons that you're going to see different statistics on it is because some people are just counting the meat you get out of it. And some people are just counting the entire animal, including the bones and the hide and all of that mm. sort of thing. Now beef, this is from beef magazine as well. So I'm going to go with beef magazine has an interest to keep that number as reasonable <laughs> as possible. They, they have an interest in trying to present the thing that is most friendly to them. So we're going to give them the most generous interpretation of that. That's still much, much higher than poultry and other, other animal products. When you're looking at poultry, it's more like two to three pounds. When we're looking at beef, we're talking about six pounds of grain to feed and be able to get one pound of animal. So that's not very efficient at all. Even the most efficient beef produced in the U.S. requires 28 times the land, consumes 11 times the water, and produces five times the greenhouse gases as other livestock. And that's uh, according to Mon an article in Manga Bay. So it is just space-wise, water-wise, carbon emissions-wise, just much more impactful. And then beef requires 20 times more land and emits 20 times more greenhouse gases per gram of edible protein than common plant proteins such as beans. So this is another argument you're going to hear is you're not counting it correctly because beef provides more nutritional value than a plant or a chicken. Whatever way you want to, to roll with it, beef doesn't shake out very highly on any of these lists. There are other ways to get protein. There's other ways to get calories. So it, it's not as if we could do a one-to-one -one ratio on a lot of these things, but still there's, it's, it's a big impact compared to some of the alternatives. So I put a little graph in here for you, Sarah, and I'll end up posting this on social media, but it's greenhouse gas emissions across the supply chain. So if you take a look at that, Sarah, again, we'll post this on social media. This is from our, our world in data, and it shows in colors kind of what we can attribute some of those carbon emissions to. The first one is land use changes. So it's the green portion. And Sarah, tell me how that compares to all the other foods on the list. How, how does that green bar alone compare to the other foods on the list? It's, it's definitely the biggest. It's significantly larger than most of them. My eyesight's not good enough. I'm trying to like squint at this. Oh, that's sad. Chocolate, <laughs> chocolate, yeah. the one that has the next highest green bar, but especially, you know, I, I'm, I'm looking at some of the other, the other meat ones. So compared to pig or poultry, I mean, I don't know if that's like five times, even the length of, of some of those other ones. Yeah. It's, it's, it's larger, a lot bigger now, chocolate 
oftentimes is grown in tropical areas where it's almost exclusively replacing things like rainforest, which is why the land use change Mm. is going to be counted more in there. And again, we'll talk a lot about that in a little bit. The other thing is, is that we eat a lot more beef per year than we eat chocolate. So Uh, when you're talking about your consumption, your consumption of beef is a lot higher, even though chocolate does have a pretty good land use change impact. The next bar is brown and that's the farm. It's a joke, guys, how much bigger, (laughs) like the, the segment for farm under beef is basically larger than any other things total. Right. (laughs) It's crazy how big this is. Now that has to do with not just the food production that we just talked about, the fact that you have to grow a lot of crops to be able to produce pounds of meat. This is also has to do with methane, which we will talk about as well. And so those are the two biggest kind of things going on. I would say lamb and mutton also have a, has a fairly large bar when it comes to the brown. And that is because they are similar types of animals to cows. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. I'm going to test Sarah's vet school knowledge. Oh no. Um, <laughs> and, and the things after that, it's, it's like the top emitters are beef from a, a beef herd, lamb and mutton, cheese, and beef in a dairy herd. So <laughs> Those are the top emitters on this scale. Again, this graph is called greenhouse gas emissions across the supply chain and overall much higher impact. But I talked a little bit about methane there. And this is one of the reasons that beef is much different from a lot of the other meats that we commonly eat here in the U.S. So Sarah, cows are ruminants. What's a ruminant? Okay, I can handle (laughs) at least basically, although I am already thinking about all of the things that I should know about cow ruminants digest things that I have long since forgotten (laughs) but so uh ruminant are like our our cows and sheep and and things like that they have a specialized stomach they have a specialized digestive system to help them get more nutrients out of all of this fibrous plant material that they eat basically so ruminants have not four stomachs they have a four chambered stomach so there are four different sections they're they're stomach, one of which is called a rumen, um, that basically does different things and helps break down food in different ways. But unlike us, where our esophagus is basically designed to have food go one way, ruminants will, they will chew their food, sometimes not well, swallow it down, it'll go into that four-chambered stomach, and then they will basically regurgitate some of that food that's their cud, and they will chew their cud to continue breaking things down and then swallow it back down. Yep. <laughs> it's kind of gross. This is an evolutionary way that ruminants have been able to survive amongst a lot of competition. If you think about the African savanna, the animals there, there's a lot of grazers, there's a lot of large herbivores, and they're competing over all the same foods. Ruminants are much less picky eaters because they have such an interesting digestive tract. Um, that includes animals like giraffes too and deer. I used to work a goat yard when I worked at Philly and everyone would always come up and be like, are your goats pregnant? Because if Mm -hmm. you've ever been by a goat, they are huge. And I would go, no. And then I would poke them on the one side of their stomach. I believe it's their right side. And like, you can just feel the gas that they're just very wide. It's just part of their normal digestive system. But yeah, if you've ever seen, you know, the cow chew and cud, that's part of being Mm -hmm. a ruminant. Another part of being a ruminant is in that process of digestion, it means that you're producing a lot of methane. So what is methane? Um, If carbon dioxide is CO2, methane is CH4. And it is actually a much more potent greenhouse gas 
one of the reasons that estimates really vary as to how to compare cows compared to other animals is because we're talking a lot about methane. Methane is more potent, but it doesn't stay in the atmosphere as long. So if you are trying to do a calculation of how to compare those two things over a hundred year period, according to the EPA, methane is 24 times more potent than a carbon dioxide as a regular emission. It ends up basically over time degrading into carbon dioxide. It doesn't stay up in the atmosphere as methane for as long. That's if you take it over a hundred year period. Now it's important to note that that's, I mean, humans are weird. That's a fairly arbitrary <laughs> number. <laughs> It feels round to us. We like that. But like, that's an arbitrary number within time. If you take it over a 20 year period, which is really much more of what we're talking about when we're talking about climate change, we're talking about things that we need to impact in the nearer future than a hundred years. It is considered according to an article in the New York times, 80 times more potent than carbon dioxide. And 39% of the global warming impact of cattle can be attributed to methane. So that's a lot. <laughs> that That's one of the reasons that they are so much more impactful is because of that. If you ever hear someone on the news yelling about cow burps or cow farts, <laughs> this is why. And we do care about how much they're burping because it has a really outsized impact on the environment. Now, methane emissions are influenced by the type of food that we feed our cows. So we'll talk a little bit about that later in the episode as well to talk about things that we can do to help reduce beef's impact on our environment. But that is another thing that makes cows a little bit different. Also sheep and goats as well. We have talked a little bit about this, but our other issue is land use. One of the reasons beef has such a high impact is because of the amount of space, not only those cattle take, but the amount of food it takes to grow, to feed them. When you convert land into either agriculture for crops, or if you convert it into pastures, you are removing the native flora that acts like a carbon sink. Now, again, another argument that is made is that a lot of the places that we have cattle feeding out on pastures are actually not conducive to areas where we could feed crops uh, or where we could grow crops. They're just not really the best place for us to be growing them. However, one, I would say agroforestry is the thing that indigenous people have been practicing for a really long time. And we need to be innovative about how we grow our food. And so even if it doesn't take industrial size crops, we could still grow things in areas other than what we're doing right now. Also it's the native flora there, whether it's a grassland or it is a rainforest still have value, um, inherent value, as we've talked about with all the species that live there. A lot of those grasslands are kind of underestimated of how much biodiversity actually lives in them because we like studying the rainforest. And when you look at a savanna, you're going to notice a lot less, but you have to look a little closer and you'll find all sorts of different yes. things. So that's incredibly important to thinking about. And, and those natural areas act as a carbon sink. So when you're looking at habitable land on earth, it excludes all ice and desert and ocean and water, uh, we use 50% of that habitable land for agriculture. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's so, mind blowing. So yeah, any place that you would want to live one in two chance that it's already got something growing on it. Guess how much, uh, land is taken up by cities, roads, towns, like places that we live. Any idea? No idea. 1%, 1%. Are you kidding yeah. me? <laughs> Nope. This is according to our world in data. Um, so they showed basically we take 50% up for agriculture. That leaves 50%, something like 37% is forest, but yeah, 1% is urban areas and, wow. and things. Yeah. 
So that, I mean, puts that 50% even more into perspective. Right. Imagine all the people live in a tiny little area, but we require so much land to be able to produce our diet. Mm -hmm. So when you combine grazing space for cattle and other livestock with the crops that are grown to feed the livestock, 77% of the global farming land is for livestock production. Wow. So that's 23% that are used to grow all of our plants, all of our fruits, vegetables, grains, all the things that we directly eat or are processed into things that we directly eat are on 23% of that farming land. 77 goes to supporting animals that we then eat. That's a really inefficient use of space. Mm-hmm. Again, you can't one-to-one say like, oh, well, you can replace all the, the cattle pastures with industrial crops and that will feed the same amount of people. There's different calorie counts and everything, but it's an absurd amount of land. (laughs) It's a lot. And that especially becomes an issue when you start talking about really vulnerable places around the world. Habitats that are already have a lot of pressure on them have already disappeared. And oftentimes existing countries that haven't historically produced as much beef as the United States has. So in the Amazon, in the Amazonian states and countries, 80% of the deforestation there can be attributed to cattle production. So we talked about forest production and how timber maybe is around 10% of the places with the most deforestation, but in the Amazon, 80% of the deforestation can be attributed to cattle production. Brazil is the number one exporter of beef in the world. So here in the U.S., about 5% of our imported beef, not 5% of the beef we eat, but the stuff that we import comes from Brazil. Um, but people in lots of other countries consume Brazilian sourced meat. Um, things, places like China and Egypt, for example, get a lot of their beef from Brazil. And even though we don't get that much from Brazil, JBS, who I talked about earlier, who's the biggest meat producer in the world, is one of our largest beef suppliers in the U.S. And they're a Brazil-based company. They have been linked to illegal deforestation-linked beef since at least 2011. That's like the first article I could see on there. And we should note that JBS doesn't own every farm their beef comes from. You can think if you've got like a neighbor who is a farmer or a family member who's a farmer, they oftentimes sell to those larger conglomerates like Purdue and Tyson and JBS to actually slaughter, process the beef, distribute it under their brand. So it can be difficult for companies to be able to trace all the way down their supply chain to figure out exactly where that beef is coming from. But they're one of the, they're the biggest meat producer in the whole world. They should have the resources to be able to verify that their beef isn't coming from illegal processes. Mm-hmm. They have pledged to go deforestation free in their supply chain by 2035, which is kind of absurd. That's 14 years from now. That's a really long time from now. And they also have had deforestation problems for a really long time and haven't done an adequate job of addressing them, of rooting this out in their supply chain. It's hard, but that's part of their responsibility as the supplier is to make sure that it is legally sourced beef. This not only destroys habitat for wildlife, as you can imagine, but it also impinges upon the lands of indigenous people. So the Rama Creole land in Nicaragua has been invaded by non-native people, specifically for cattle ranching, as well as the Uruawa people in Brazil. Their land has also been violently seized and turned to cattle ranching land. I apologize if I've 
pronounce them incorrectly, but these are just two examples from Amnesty International and Mangabay who did investigations and found that um, in Brazil, you can legally deforce some areas, but these were illegal seizures of indigenous lands. These were their land rights, and this was done completely illegally by outside people. So does our beef come from the Amazon? Probably not. Probably not the stuff that's on your plate right now. But it's really important to acknowledge that demand somewhere increases demand in other places and increases the need to expand the supply. So we're going to talk a little bit about that as, as well a little bit later in the episode. But it's important to note that our culture here does impact other places. And we'll talk a little bit about how much the U.S. eats in beef. Yeah. Here. And this this whole side of this topic, we're talking about the the land use change. This is another area, right, Casey, where you might see some discrepancy lie so some people who are trying to maybe downplay at a that's probably not the right way to say it but that are are saying that the beef industry doesn't have as much of an environmental impact as as other people say this is one spot where they might overlook they might leave this piece of it out and i think this is a really important thing to think about when you're when you're thinking about your food is, is where is the land coming from for this production and what are the impacts of that? So I just wanted to throw no, that that's, there. That's a great point. We have a finite amount of land on planet earth. We're not going to significantly increase. And in fact, it's possible we could decrease some, some habitable land areas as climate change does take an effect and causes desertification in certain habitable areas um, and reduces our ability but it's going to put more stressors on our food production systems as well. It's important as that happens and as our human population grows that we think about how we're allocating our land to the best use of calories and nutrition possible. And I think it's very difficult to make an argument that beef is the best way you can do that. So what can we actually do about this? <laughs> Sarah, there's two ways that we can kind of help. We need to improve our means of production and we also need to decrease the demand for meat overall. So are you familiar with any ways that production can change to reduce the emissions? I mean, just sort of superficially. So we talked about the sort of inefficient feed conversion, right? How much feed right. that it takes to add on to get like a pound of meat, basically. So trying to come up with ways to do that more efficiently, to kind of shorten that process between birth and finishing of, of these cattle and helping them put, put on weight more quickly and more efficiently, I know is one aspect that's being looked at. And then I don't know if, if you came across this at all too, but aren't they even sort of looking at better ways to use the land too? Like I was reading something about like including more like native trees within pasture land and stuff like that. So kind of just re-looking at ways that we're using the space as well. So that, that's true. Yeah. So what you first talked about is making sure that we can more efficiently pack on the pounds onto our cattle. There's actually less cows in the U.S. now than there were in the 1970s. Now in the 1970s, that's right around when our beef consumption in the U.S. peaked. We actually have reduced beef consumption in the U.S. by a third. We still eat loads of meat. I think we're still at like peak meat consumption, but we've switched over to things like pork and poultry because there are also health impacts of eating lots and lots of red meat as well. But we have improved our 
agricultural practices so that even though there's less cows in the U.S. than the 1970s, they actually produce more beef overall than we did in the 1970s. And that's by figuring out how to make the cows bigger, how to pack on more pounds. And so in places around the world, that's going to always be a challenge because people don't have the resources necessarily to be able to feed the highest efficiency food product. Things with more moisture are going to be better for methane production and, and sometimes higher quality food can be more expensive and difficult to access within areas around the world that are producing beef. So yes, we can increase the efficiency. Another thing that was suggested is to add more native flora to cow pastures. And they have suggested that that actually could hold like four times more cattle in the same amount of land. If we had more diversity there. Now, most cows spend more of their time in pasture lands than they do end up on feedlots. So unless you have pure grass-fed beef, most likely what happened is they spent the beginning of their lives in a pasture, eating a lot of grass and foraging and grazing, but their last like two years would be on a feedlot where they're more concentrated. This has issues with nutrient runoff and things like that, but basically more concentrated area eating grains that were specifically grown for them to put on enough pounds. So that's where a lot of that feed comes in. Now there's a really interesting study that they did showed that adding like 3% seaweed to the diet of cows reduced methane emissions by 80%. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. (laughs) Um, So yeah, it was just a couple ounces. They demonstrated this happened over 21 weeks. They did show that when they tried to do it for dairy cows, they did show a decrease in milk production, but Mm -hmm. for beef, they actually found that it was made them more efficient at packing on the pounds. I believe this is an Australian study. So that's really cool, right? We'd be able to reduce methane emissions from the digestive process by 80% because of just the way the, the formation of that seaweed. There are some drawbacks to it. So because they spend most of the time on the pasture land, there's not really an efficient way to feed cows seaweed every day when they are grazing. (laughs) So you're only able to do this in feedlots, which accounts for about 11% of the methane emissions over a cow's life. So it still is worth pursuing, but wouldn't be able necessarily to cut methane emissions 80% for the cow its entire life. Yeah. Right. Also, can we produce produce enough of this seaweed, right? That, that's also the question. We have millions and millions of cattle on planet Earth. That's a lot of seaweed, even if it's just a little portion of their diet. So those are some drawbacks, but I thought it was a really interesting thing out of the Smithsonian Magazine they came up with. Another thing is reducing food waste. So one thing would be making sure that cattle production areas have veterinary care for their animals because think about it. If an animal dies before it actually reaches the slaughtering house, it's not reaching its full potential for food and it might not be used at all for food. Um, and that's basically a waste of resources. Just speaking coldly about livestock, Mm -hmm. that's, that's food going into something that's not reaching its full potential. We just wasted things. So being able to make sure that the cows survive to their full adulthood is important. Also supply chain, I believe, which is what we think of when we're talking about transport and distributing and packaging and processing all of these things. I think that takes up about 18% of the carbon emissions, but it's actually a really, really important process. We don't actually necessarily want to cut carbon emissions too much from that area because things like refrigeration and freezing and 
processing end up reducing our food waste overall. It makes things last longer. And so it is actually a really vital part of that to reduce the overall carbon emissions by making sure not as much food is wasted. There's always efficiencies that we can add to that, but that's also something that we should think about. Sarah, what about consumers? What can consumers do to reduce our carbon footprint related to beef? I mean, the biggest thing, again, as with consuming anything is, is to consume less of it. And, you know, we said at the offset, Casey and I are both meat eaters. We care a lot about the environment and we also eat meat and occasionally we eat beef, but we also said we eat less of it now than we used to. And so I think, you know, that's a really important thing, just kind of making a conscious decision. This does not, I feel like as with so many things these days, this has a tendency to start to feel very polarizing and it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be an all or nothing response. We can start off by just cutting back. We eat more beef than we need to eat. How can we, how can we start to make some reductions in that way. So I think reducing our, our consumption in, in some way is important. And then, you know, re reducing food waste on our end too. So we just talked about it from, from the other side, but you know, this is the thing that I've been working on too. Again, that that's been hard for me. And I mentioned earlier, I do a grocery delivery type service that has been really helpful, um, not only in, in eating a little bit healthier, but also trying to cut back on some of my waste. It has other environmental impacts that we don't need to talk about right now, but, um, <laughs> but it does help from that, that food waste. And so the more that we can be better about planning that sort of thing and, and reducing what we are tossing will help. Yeah, that's right. Americans eat over 50 pounds of beef every year. I think Sarah and I probably safely say we don't eat that much. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that means that there's other people who yeah. are eating way more than us, right? That's to give you an idea. If everyone on planet earth ate like Americans, we would use 138% of earth's habitable land to produce enough meat, just meat Wow. to <laughs> feed the planet. I think like you said, it, it can be very polarizing. It can feel like a team sport sometimes when you're talking about these issues. We grew up on beef. We like the taste of beef. We both eat beef. It is not an all or nothing proposal. It's about being responsible with your resources. And that's really what climate change is about. And it's also what land use is about as well. We have a finite amount of land that we can use. We have a finite amount of carbon emissions we can produce before we start really impacting the planet. And just like we should be responsible with our resources in our own home, be responsible with how we spend our money, be responsible with how we use our own time and energy, we as a society need to be responsible consumers of our planet. And it is not sustainable as Americans. We are eating more than our fair share. It's not fair to tell other people to cut down their carbon emissions when this is a very clear way that we could be doing that in small manageable ways. If we ate half of this amount, it would be way more sustainable. That's about a hamburger and a half a week. So that's not an insubstantial amount of beef to be still consuming. It's not saying you have to cut it entirely, but if you can cut your beef consumption in half, it would go loads of the way towards what we actually need to be doing as far as how our agriculture impacts climate change and carbon footprint. So 
I, I want to bring this up. Like, why is it important? We're up against a ticking time clock. We're, we're down to the wire guys. We don't want to make this a huge bummer, but climate change is real. It's happening and everything that we do impacts it. And this is a substantial way that we impact it. And it is an easy way for us to cut it down. It doesn't mean you can't have hamburgers on the 4th of July. It doesn't mean you can't celebrate your son's graduation with a steak. Like you can still do these things. It's just about finding alternatives for some of the other occasions that you might be eating beef and transferring some of its significance, maybe to more important things. It's not anti-American. We've already cut down our beef consumption by a third. So it's actually something very naturally happening, happening. We just need to move it a little bit further. And it's not too, again, you know, we live in an, not necessarily a beef producing state, but we live in an agricultural state. You know, I know people who are farmers, this is not anti-farm or, or even like beef people who are involved in in beef production, like Casey said, you know, we, we are, we've cut our beef consumption as Americans, but production, I don't think has fallen. Right. Casey. So, you know, we're we're, export. Yeah. yeah, We're not out looking to destroy an industry either, but we're looking to help it change and evolve. And I know lots of people who are farmers who care very greatly for the environment. So I just want to put that side of it out there as well. We also export our culture. Um, that's a really interesting part of a diet for a small planet is that think about how many McDonald's are <laughs> in other countries. We have seeded this taste for beef in lots of other places where culturally, historically, they have not depended on beef for a large part of their diet at all. And it is us exporting that culture and, and, and putting money into different sectors that is increasing that demand abroad for beef. Your America has, is not increasing, but we're still the second biggest consumer per person after Argentina. Who would have thought I would hire Argentina. (laughs) So it's important that we set a, a good example. It's important that we walk our talk. It's important that we take responsibility for the excesses that we use. And it's important that we start to look at it as doing our fair share and as taking it as the luxury that it is. We are so separated from the impacts that we make on the land because so many of us don't grow our own food and we don't interact with anyone who does. And that totally takes away all the consequences from when we go to the grocery store. But it's important to start thinking about that and taking responsibility for it. That was great. Thank you so much, Casey. Obviously, guys, this is a huge topic too. So, but hopefully that was helpful for all of you. I think that gave us some really good things to think about. Probably a topic that we'll be coming back in and talking more about in different ways or from different facets in the future as well. But that was a great one, Casey. So really appreciate that. And stick around, everybody. We'll we'll be back in a minute with our take-home action for the week. And I'm excited to see what these are. All right, guys, and we're back with our uh, take-home action segment of the week. I wanted to do one that would include all our vegetarian friends. So some of you are like, this doesn't apply to me. I've already cut all the (laughs) beef out of my diet. I I didn't even think about this. We have many friends who are vegetarians that are like, 
Yep. Okay. Quick statistic fun facts about five to 6% of Americans identify as vegetarian. It is mostly people of color. Only 3% of white people are, are vegetarian. So I found that statistic really uh, inspiring and impressive. So, uh, so yeah, we can do better than 5% overall, but it's interesting how those demographics break down. You're more likely to be a vegetarian if you're a woman as well, which correlates also with beef consumption, but okay. So your regular take-home message, this is your on the level take-home message. I want you to find one new plant-centric meal recipe to try. Sarah looks excited. I'm so, well, I, I'll have to find another one. I, I right. have one now. Like Yay. I just recently found a recipe that is vegetarian, could easily be vegan too. If you wanted it to be, I, I do use a little bit of cheese in it and it's like the best thing and it's so easy to make and I love it so much. So I'll have to find we'll another ha- one to add. And, and maybe we can post links or post our, our recipes as well. So find one new plant-centric meal. If you're a meat eater, see if you can work that into your diet and decrease the amount of beef or really any meat in your diet. But remember, beef has that outside impact. The beast mode challenge, and this is a little bit privilege, but if you are vaccinated, if you happen to be vaccinated or have a bubble that you are in a pod already, invite your friends and family over and make it for them. Yeah. So remember that we're, we're our own little influencers. That's kind of the point, not us, but like our, all, every human being on earth, you influence your circle. And so I feel like sometimes people who might be curious about this, but aren't really willing to take that next step. One of those barriers could be the fact that they're like, what do I even make? Which like the cookbook my mom gave me full of delicious recipes. I love you, mom. Thanks for making it for me. It's not full of very many vegetarian options. And so this is a way for you to be able to share that plant-centric meal and show them that you can eat well, you can be full and you can have a good diet, even without meat being the center part portion of it. So this is a great way for us to be able to impact uh, our little circle of people and maybe also have a little bit of social time with each other, yeah. which is important too. Yeah. We need that now. I love it. Can I add in a bonus challenge yes. that doesn't have anything <laughs> sure. to do with beef? Do it. <laughs> Watch an episode of Wild Cats. Yes. <laughs> I, I said it earlier, but I'm going to put it in a challenge to just maybe get some more people to do it. So yeah. we got a regular, a beast mode and a bonus, a bonus challenge. Yeah. I mean, Hey, you can eat your plant centric meal while watching wild crap. Perfect. It's, it's Perfect. you can double up on all of these. You get bonus <laughs> points from us. If you have any thoughts or feedback on this episode, again, if you're here to quibble about statistics, I'm going to list all my sources. You're going to find different ones. It's okay. <laughs> we talked a little bit about why there's different ones out there. That's all right. We can, if, if you're part of the industry, if we have grossly misrepresented something. Yeah, definitely. Please let us know. Um, but again, we'll have the resources available for you to be able to explore what we were talking about on your own, but you can email at us at a little greener podcast at gmail.com. You can follow us a little greener pod on Instagram or on Facebook, a little greener podcast. We love hearing from you. We appreciate you guys listening and we hope you have a lovely week. We'll see you sort of. You'll hear us next week. <laughs> Bye, Bye, guys. Everyone.